through, through the encounters I had with Rachel and her husband George, who sadly died about six weeks ago now uh, from progressive neurologic illness, dementia of uncertain type, we still think it's probably an atypical form of Alzheimer's disease, although it may have been frontotemporal dementia, we'll find out hopefully soon. Um, I began to notice not so much about the patient before me, but the other patient sitting next to him, and that was Rachel. I began to understand in a much different way than I had appreciated in the prior seven months of my fellowship what it meant to be a caregiver and the toll that it took. And that day forward, I began asking all, all of my patient caregivers, not just how, how is your loved one doing, but how are you doing? Always trying to remember to include the patient caregiver in the conversation, their own well-being. Uh, going back through my own emails in as, a, as kind of the backstory to the development of Rachel's book, I was struck by how my own memory failed me and the, and the decisions that led ultimately to his first institutionalization at, at a local nursing home, uh, suddenly, seemingly, to me, but seemingly making sense of this decision that had come about over time, uh, over the end of 2007. So without taking away too much of Rachel's thunder, much of which, much of which will be discussed uh, in reflection of her book, Strange Relation, I want to uh, bring to the podium Rachel Haddis, George's wife, and our speaker for today. I think this mic is on so I can yes. wander around. Um, thank you, Dr. Noble, and it's a very strong and moving experience to be back in the Neurological Institute. A little weird, I must say, but I'm very happy to be here. And I, I think audiences should know what they're in for. So my intention is to read three chunks from the book, probably no more than 10 minutes each, and a little bit of sidebar digression, and then there will be time for Q&A and wine and cheese. Every time I'm not reading poetry, I'm terrified of boring the audience, because prose is longer, and yet actually poetry is more boring. So who's <laughs> to say? So Strange Relation is something of a patchwork um, of my caregiving narrative, George's illness, uh, it's, I try to make it chronological, but there's a lot about poetry and literature in it as well. The subtitle is A Memoir of Marriage, Dementia, and Poetry. So I'm going to begin by reading from the prologue, then a poem, then two other prose passages. How many people in this room are familiar with frontotemporal dementia? I'm assuming many, but not all. How many are not? Okay, Okay. good. That makes me feel better. All right, so, because um, I don't want to be talking to you about things you all know perfectly. In early 2005, my husband, George Edwards, a composer and professor of music at Columbia University, was diagnosed with dementia. He was 61 years old. I was 56. And of course, dementia is a big umbrella term. I think we know that. Neurodegenerative diseases present a field of study that is both bleak and bewildering. Starting from zero, I've learned, and this book came out early in 2011 and was written mostly in 2008-09. I've learned a great deal about them in five years, enough to know how little I know, for nothing in this field of medicine is simple. Diagnoses are complicated, often only an autopsy can determine exactly which ailment the victim suffered from. Yet diagnosis, however problematic and uncertain, is more advanced than current understanding of the etiology or prevention or treatment of these diseases. That's right, isn't it, Dr. Noble? Thank you. 
So when George's dementia was first diagnosed, we were told that it was unclear whether he was suffering from Alzheimer's disease or frontotemporal dementia, FTD. At the time, I wasn't familiar with the latter term. In fact, I had trouble getting it into my head. I wanted to call it prototemporal dementia, but I, I began to Google. I investigated and I was confronted with a teeming world of names that apply to the many forms of this family of diseases. For example, frontotemporal dementia, frontotemporal degeneration, and Pick's disease. Dr. Pick was a friend or contemporary of Dr. Alzheimer, by the way are three names that appear to describe the same disease. Then there is the grim alphabet soup of acronyms for different diseases in the same general family. PPA, primary progressive aphasia, CBD, corticobasal degeneration, and PSP, progressive supranuclear palsy. For those of you who read Science Tuesday in the Times yesterday, you can add CTE, um, chronic? And, and chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is caused by concussion, so it's somewhat different in its etiology, but it's in a sense in that family, I think. All these acronyms, and there are others, refer to various neurodegenerative diseases distinct from Alzheimer's. Two salient facts about this group of ailments, ailments of whose existence I had been blissfully ignorant for about 55 years, struck me right away, since both were so clearly germane to George's case. First, these dementias tend to strike earlier in life than Alzheimer's does. The average age at onset is 60. Looking back, George must have been about 55 when his illness began, though there's never any way of knowing exactly when it begins. Second, whereas Alzheimer's typically presents as difficulties with memory, frontotemporal dementias and their ilk tend initially to cause disturbances in language and behavior. Thus, an FTD sufferer, let's say it's a woman in her 50s or 60s or even 40s, who begins to speak less or strangely and to act withdrawn, apathetic, disorganized, disoriented, disinhibited, or otherwise odd, is often misdiagnosed with depression or psychosis, medicated incorrectly, or subjected to psychotherapy. <coughs> which under the circumstances is an exercise in futility. Little sidebar here, George and I were not at all alone in seeking help from a marriage counselor, which, you know, with 2020 hindsight, that was barking up the wrong tree. I believe the event on Monday is about diagnosis, sort of clarifying the diagnosis for psychiatrists. Even now, five years along, I, I'm using the present tense, obviously, George was still living when I wrote this, his diagnosis isn't clear. His lumbar puncture and PET scan results are more indicative of Alzheimer's. His symptoms, at least initially, more like FTD. Some of his doctors split the difference and pronounced his illness an atypical frontal variant of Alzheimer's. Dr. Noble, in a phrase I would like to put on a t-shirt, emailed me, a clear diagnosis remains elusive. Isn't that catchy? <laughs> Since all these diseases are at present incurable, a precise diagnosis finally doesn't matter very much. It's equally quixotic, though perfectly natural, to hope for a clear diagnosis or a cure. As for treatment, medication can sometimes slow down the ravages of these various dementias, although medications for Alzheimer's and FTD may not be identical, another source of confusion. I'm not sure that that's correct, but I'll let it stand. I can be corrected later. Other drugs, such as antipsychotics, sometimes ease symptoms like agitation. But although some dementias move faster than others, all of them are progressive. 
In January 2008, I moved George out of our apartment and into a dementia facility. That's an easy sentence to read. It was a terribly hard sentence to write. I wanted to take a weaselly refuge in the passive tense. You know, George was moved, or we moved George. But you know what? I did it. Um, it was also very hard to live. It's impossible to say precisely when symptoms of George's illness began to show themselves. Just as most diagnoses of a dementia must rely on hindsight, so this book proceeds by way of several flashbacks. I wrote most of it, and now I'm forget I'm already forgetting when I wrote it. I wrote most of it between 2005 and 2007, years when I was living with George, but in a zone of deepening silence. During those years, literature was often my most faithful companion, so this is in part a book about literature. More precisely, it's about various literatures. There are books toward which our situation steered me that I would never have read otherwise. Books with eloquent titles like Stolen Mind, Death in Slow Motion, Ambiguous Loss, and What If It's Not Alzheimer's. A very different group included books and stories I had read years before and that I now saw in a new light. These included Dickens's David Copperfield and Hard Times, Wharton's Ethan Frome, James's The Portrait of a Lady, and Anderson's The Snow Queen, among many others. Greek myths, too, took on a new urgency. A situation like Agamemnon's anguished, no-win decision at Aulis, or the, um, a character like the immortally decrepit Tithonus felt anything but remote. They were more like pieces of a case history. And of course, we know that Freud went to Greek mythology to name some cases that he studied. And then there was poetry. Many of the poems that sustained me during this time were pieces I thought I already knew, but again, they spoke to me with fresh voices. Poems by Cavafy and Hardy, Dickinson and Frost, Milton and Keats, Larkin and Merrill. Though many of them are certainly beautiful, these works of literature didn't soothe or console or lull me with their beauty. On the contrary, they made me sit up and pay attention. Each in its own way, they helped me by telling me the truth, or rather a truth, about the almost overwhelming situation in which I found myself. I learned what isn't always obvious under such circumstances. I wasn't alone. Other people these works reminded me had experienced, if not precisely my dilemma, then their own, equally hard or harder. Those people had found the courage to face and describe situations which might easily have reduced them to silence. If silence was the enemy, literature was my best friend. No matter how lonely, frightened, confused, or angry I felt, and Dr. Noble is right to ask caregivers how they feel, feels really weird to sit there and be silenced by being ignored, some writer had captured the sensation. How does it feel when people you thought were your friends turn away from illness, when you've almost forgotten what love is like? when you are forced to choose between unpalatable alternatives. Frost and Aeschylus and Merrill knew the answers to these questions, questions doctors don't usually like to ask, let alone answer. In doctors' waiting rooms or in the quiet evenings after George had gone to bed or on the train to work, I read and read. Thank God I could still read. And I could write. Some of the chapters in this book were written in, resp in response to my need to record a conversation, a dream, a walk, or yet another doctor's appointment. 
I rediscovered what every writing teacher knows, that writing what you remember helps you to remember more and to remember it better. Turning life at its bleakest or dullest into prose was absorbing and also rewarding. The more I wrote, the more I remembered and understood. I'm a teacher, but first and foremost, I'm a poet. Since my father's death when I was 17 years old, poetry has steadily helped me not only to express what I was feeling at a given time, but also to figure out what I was thinking. In the case of a situation as elusive and amorphous, but also as powerful and all-pervasive as this illness, poetry's gift of trope often shed crucial light on the prevailing gloom. What did this situation feel like? What did it resemble? How could I better wrap my mind around it? Other questions arose, too. How could I mourn or rage or explain? How could I speak to and sometimes for someone who no longer spoke to me? For some people, help might well come from their faith in God. For me, help came from, or partly from, a source that seemed equally inexhaustible, poetry. And I've been thinking in the years since I finished this book that whatever strengths and resources we have in a situation like this as caregivers, are going to be called into play. So I'm sure if I'd been a musician, a carpenter, a mathematician, or a plumber, that would all have been useful too. It just so happened that poetry was useful to me. So I'm going to read a less literary chapter that um, takes you into the doctor's office, not a neurologist, an internist. It's chapter three of my book, and it's called into the murky world. What year did you get married? A gray December morning, 2004. George and I are sitting side by side facing his new doctor across the desk. The internist, a fresh-faced man with prematurely white hair, seems somehow able to simultaneously look us both in the eye, ask George questions, and type into his computer. I have accompanied George, brought him here really, and asked to come into the doctor's office with him. Did I already know he wouldn't be able to navigate by himself, navigate getting to a new place, navigate the history, navigate the Q&A? George hesitates. At what point, I ask myself now, did I get so accustomed to his hesitant speech? There are seats, please sit down if you want. Um, as if he's rummaging around for reluctant answers. Exactly when did I get used to answering for him? And how could I have assumed for so long that in the fast-paced back and forth of the classroom, he must somehow be functioning just fine, although at home he barely spoke? All such assumptions, flimsy but stubborn, had collapsed like a house of cards the week before, when George's chair at the Columbia Music Department telephoned me in the middle of the day, and the whole story came out. Missed appointments, puzzled and frustrated students lining up to complain. He can't teach, she said. I was appalled. She and I both cried on the phone, but I was also somehow not exactly surprised. A doctor had to be found, a new doctor, so here we are. George hasn't yet answered Dr. <coughs> L's question. Asking what year we were married is, I suppose, part of taking a history, or is it more like a memory test? or maybe both. At some point in the silence, I reluctantly recognize that whatever the reason for this question, maybe it's just small talk, George has no idea of the answer. 
A few snowflakes tumble lazily through the slice of gray sky I can glimpse outside the window behind Dr. L. On the wall behind his computer are photographs of his family, laughing boys, a pretty woman, a dog. I drink some water. I'm not thirsty. Hot coffee would taste a lot better than cold water, but the bottle of water keeps me busy. I fold my hands around it and look down, or raise it to my lips to plug myself up. Clearly, I am not supposed to answer, to supply the answer to this question. 1990, George says, with a rising inflection that turns the answer into a guess. I no longer remember precisely what happened next. This was, this was a lot of years ago, but <coughs> writing it helped me to remember it better. Did I look at George? Did the doctor look at me? I know I went on clutching my water bottle like a talisman. I don't think I said in so many words to either of those tall, handsome men, the one across the desk typing and the one next to me, the one to whom I'd been married since 1978, that 1990 was not the answer. I do remember that rising inside me during this whole long, long appointment was a feeling it is a little too melodramatic to call panic. It was rather a sharply etched loneliness, a loneliness that stepped out from the shadows to which I had so far consigned it, right onto center stage. There was also a queasy sense of shifting, shifting of power, of paradigms, of alliances, of allegiances. The center wasn't holding, and I was in the process, as I clung, hung onto my clammy water bottle for dear life, of casting about for a new center. In all this, there was alarm and fear, but really, as I now recall it, no surprise. Two other bits of the Q&A stick with me from that first morning when I fully entered the world of what I had not yet learned to call dementia. At some point in the history or interview or interrogation, the doctor asked George to take what I now know is a standard memory quiz, remember three words for 10 minutes or so. I can still repeat them, dog, pencil, car. George remembered none of them. Toward the end of the session, the doctor asked George about his hobbies, what he did for fun. Tennis, chess, and reading came the answer. With a chill that had already become familiar, I realized that George no longer played chess, barely read, and for the past few summers had played tennis only when I or our son offered to spend an hour on the court with him in Vermont. Soon, very soon, I would learn, although for several years I still lapsed occasionally, not to share my thoughts about my husband with my husband. A lot of what I'm describing is extremely familiar to caregivers for people with these diseases. The loneliness, the shifting allegiances, the not sharing your thoughts, at least in my experience. I'm not the only person who's had this. But that morning, when the appointment was finally over and prescriptions and referrals were in my bag, when we were once more in the corridor outside the doctor's office, I thoughtlessly turned to George and said, you know what you said to the doctor about your hobbies? You don't really play tennis or chess or read much anymore, so what you said wasn't really accurate. Why would I say something so hurtful? Because for 25 years, I had been used to sharing my thoughts with him because I still habitually turned to him as a reality check, hoping he'd be able to comfort me, to brush away my silly misgivings, because I desperately wanted to be reassured, and for years he had been pretty good at reassuring me. I was behaving as if he knew the truth of his own condition, 
And as if that truth was, as he said to the neurologist we saw a few weeks later, that he was functioning at 90% of capacity. But what I blurted out was wounding, and he blamed the messenger. All I remember of his response are the four words, you make me angry. I didn't look ahead then. The present was more than enough to cope with. But I now see, and I'm pretty sure I had an inkling even that winter morning, that I was moving rapidly into a bleak new zone where my relationship with my husband could no longer be the natural center of gravity. Indeed, I was well ensconced in that zone already and had been for some time. But only now, like the characters in Sartre's play about hell, no exit, settling into their overheated room, was I taking stock of my surroundings. <clears throat> already in December 2004 then, my role was to serve as an interpreter or translator between George and the world. This task involved much more than answering doctors' questions. I had become the guardian not only of George's medical history, but also of the story of his life, a story that was increasingly difficult for him to articulate. And, you know, looking back at this session, I'm thinking, gee, he could still talk, he could still answer questions. That did not remain the case. A story that was increasingly difficult for him to articulate, and of which it seemed that I alone knew many of the facts. Experiences, feelings, all kinds of memories from six decades of lived life. Somehow, all of this had come into my keeping. George hadn't been close to his siblings for years. His mother, disabled since 1979, had died in 2001. Colleagues, friends, where were they? Our son and I were the only people at this point who really seemed to know him. And Jonathan, who had been only 14 or so when his father began to change, was now away at college. I was the sole custodian of the fragile freight of George's past. It was a lonely role. Um, one thing I would revise, if I ever get to revise this book, is that I need to revise down the age at which Jonathan felt he lost his father. <clears throat> After George died, it came up to 10 years, not 14. So 14 was my estimate, but it was over-optimistic. Um, I think I'll read one of those poems that sustained me before I get to the final chunk of text I'll read, which is more literary again. When, when I say that poems sustained me, it is not because they were precisely about my situation, obviously. It's that they were telling a truth that was able to leap across time and cultures, and there's something to me, very reassuring about being told the truth. And I refer in that prologue to poetry's gift of trope, of telling things by means of figurative language. So roughly 100 years ago, the great Alexandrian poet Constantine Kavafi, um, who's enjoying a tremendous renaissance, he died in 1933, and he's translated every day, a new translation comes out, wrote a little poem called Walls, which can be read literally, but clearly asks to be read um, in, in a more figurative way. And I'll just leave open the way you want to interpret Kavafi's image of walls. With no consideration, no pity, no shame, they have built walls around me, thick and high. And now I sit here feeling hopeless. I can't think of anything else. This fate gnaws my mind, because I had so much to do outside. When they were building the walls, how could I not have noticed? 
but I never heard the builders, not a sound. Imperceptibly, they have closed me off from the outside world. I um, taught my wonderful narrative medicine students that poem yeah, in, the, in the fall. That was an important part of this fall. Thank you, Nellie. Thank you, Rita, who is not here. So the last passage I will read is from a very different chapter. It's, it's later in time. George is still living at home. It's 06, 07. And it's more about figurative language. Dr. Noble and I were talking about wearing a lot of hats. And I'm much happier in my poet and English teacher's hat than my caregiver's hat. Surprise. You know, it fitted better. But I, I tried to combine the hats. So I'm interested in figurative language in general and similes in particular because I had noticed I think before I put it into the caregiving context that we all know what metaphors are and similes tend to get short shrift as if they're somehow simplistic, you know. Simile is a comparison using like or as and you learn it in third grade. Any idiot can understand a simile and metaphors are more challenging. And I, I want to stand up for similes here, <laughs> although um, actually I wind up talking about both. So I begin by talking about poetry, but don't panic, I do get to illness, if that's what you want. <laughs> similes aren't merely a decorative literary device, they're functional. They help us to see freshly, to make new connections. They offer a change of perspective, and they provide a kind of relief on the battlefield of life as well as on the battlefield of Homeric epic. The Homeric epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, are the first places in Western literature where similes are used, and they're magnificent. They're long, fully developed, gorgeous similes. Wallace Stevens wrote that the imagination, by pressing back against the pressure of reality, helps us to live our lives. When I, think of a, when I try to think of a specific function or manifestation of the imagination that is helpful, Similes are what occur to me. Imagination is a very, very abstract term, and Stevens, who died in 1955, was a very abstract poet, but similes aren't all that abstract. Stevens's poem, it's a poem despite the title, Notes Toward a Supreme Fiction, an extended poetic meditation on the workings of the imagination, offers up the radiant line Life's nonsense pierces us with strange relation. I'm going to read that line again. For one thing, it gave me the title of the book, but it's not a good title because everyone wants to add an S and make it strange relations, which sounds a little kinky to me. <laughs> uh, but strange relation could mean relation as in narration, relation as in relationship, or as my sister dryly commented, that's George, he's my strange relation. So, you know, the word does mean many things. Life's nonsense pierces us with strange relation. As much good poetry has always done, this line has recently snapped into focus for me in a way the poet certainly did not intend, any more than, than Kavafi intended me to read Walls thinking of FTD. Stevens was not thinking of me when he wrote that poem. Perhaps this elasticity is a defining characteristic of poetry that retains its vitality. I've come to think of similes as able to capture that relation in all its strangeness. It might also turn out that similes manage to meet all three of the requirements that the poem notes asks of supreme fiction. Stephen, Stevens divides his long poem as if it were an outline into three rubrics. So the strange relation, or the supreme fiction rather, must be abstract, it must change, and it must give pleasure. 
For as George ever so slowly sinks further into apathy, passivity, and silence, I find myself in urgent daily need of just these three commodities. As a poet, a teacher, and above all, a human being, I need these gifts of the imagination if I am to cope. They are not sufficient, but they are damned well necessary. In the caregiving world, nothing is sufficient and everything is necessary. You know, you need, you need a support group, you need a good lawyer, you need a good doctor, you need resources, and you need the gifts of the imagination or whatever other gifts that you can muster up for yourself. Nothing's enough, but everything's necessary. Even the most sympathetic doctors write no prescriptions for the imagination. Sorry, Dr. Noble. Um, so I must give these gifts to myself. Fortunately, as Homer ever evidently knew, similes lie around everywhere waiting to be discovered. By 2006, when the uncanniness of living with a man who couldn't carry on a conversation but could scamper around a tennis court had crept into every nook and cranny of my days and infiltrated my dreams, certain similes came to my aid, opening windows to let in light and air. They helped to lift me a little way above the battlefield of living alongside someone with dementia, a battlefield not of epic heroism, but of remorseless, grinding <coughs> boredom, of endless petty tasks and bureaucratic <coughs> challenges, of pervasive loneliness. Similes gave and still give me a space from which to scan the terrain and see what my life, our lives, actually look like. I noticed that in the last extremely difficult months of George's life, I was coming up with new similes, but those will have to wait for the sequel, I guess. But they're friends. They're friends of the imagination. Similes can and do pop into my head or anyone's head, like textbook examples of comparisons with like or as, but they can also be more dynamic than that formula might suggest. When we were first given something like a diagnosis early in 2005, George asked if he would get better. The neurologist replied that his condition was permanent and progressive. This tidy, alliterative package, like many simple formulations, wasn't easy to think about. The first half of it, permanent, suggested stasis. The second half, progressive, suggested motion. Pondering George's condition meant somehow reconciling the two, and soon I started envisioning a one-way road on which it was possible to drive at various speeds or maybe even stop for a while. There might be an occasional detour. Some of the scenery might even be quite pretty. <clears throat> but there was no turning around and going back. During 2005 and 2006, we'd been dawdling along this one-way thoroughfare. As I conceived of it, the road was lonely. We might be the only people traveling in our, and then I thought, I'm not envisioning a car. I'm actually envisioning something like a train. It changed in mid-simile from a car to a very local train that made many, many stops along the way. Having started its long journey at this pokey pace, the train seemed likely to continue traveling pretty much that way, though one couldn't rule out sudden and unpredictable bursts of speed, which is what actually happened toward the end of George's life, a sudden and unpredictable burst of speed. Above the road or above the train tracks, the sky was cloudy. Every now and then the sun would break through. Sometimes the whole sky would clear. But sooner or later, and usually sooner, the sun would disappear again. The curious thing was that whenever the sun was out, the whole day seemed likely to go on being sunny. But when it hid behind a cloud, the mood of the day instantly and apparently permanently changed. 
Why didst thou promise such a beauteous day and make me travel forth without my cloak to let base clouds o'ertake me on my way, hiding thy bravery in their rotten smoke? Shakespeare asks the sun reproachfully in Sonnet 34. I knew the feeling. And of course, such is Shakespeare's command of trope that he's not just, he's not talking about the weatherman, he's talking about a love affair that went badly, but it's actually both. The one-way road, the slow train, the uncertain sky, all these helped me, if not to understand what was going on, then to understand how little I could do about it, any more than you can do about the weather, for example. And with this understanding, to try to manage the ups and downs, the fitful bursts of sunshine succeeded by more clouds. There were fewer sunny spots by late in 2006, but there were also fewer bursts of George's anger, bursts for which it occurred to me I functioned like a surge protector. Surge protector, shield, buffer, padding, interpreter, none of these similes was quite right, but all were useful to the degree that they helped me to get my mind around my almost inconceivable and certainly indescribable new role without see by seeing it with some semblance of Homeric objectivity, a quality recognized by critics from Longinus to Matthew Arnold as noble and sublime, which also turns out to be quotidian, demotic, and handy. As George's anger ebbed, the reproachful notes left for me on the dining room table became a thing of the past. Writing became a thing of the past. They might reappear, but given the one-way nature of the journey, I doubted they would and it became clear that they wouldn't. Unless he was hungry or suddenly roused from sleep, George now did not say anything biting or reproachful <coughs> to me or to anyone else. He said hardly anything at all. When he did speak, it was almost always to answer a question. I kept intending and then somehow failing to test this observation by refraining from putting my quest customary questions to him. That is, I thought, if I don't say anything to him, how many words will he say in the course of the day? But I never found out because I don't think I wanted to find out. I don't think I wanted to keep track. Typical questions I asked George in those days included, are you ready for lunch now? What's it like out? How are the Braves doing? Are you okay? This last one felt like a clumsy approximation of inquiring of someone with a severe physical disability if he's comfortable. Since below the neck, George was fine for a very long time, and above the neck he was not and would not be, it was the wrong question. But there were no right questions. Similes, language at play in the absence of dialogue, filled in some of the gap. A striking feature of George's vanishingly sparse speech, and I wonder if someone could study this, by the way, what I'm about to say, was that he virtually never used the pronoun I as in, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I want. When my sister was visiting, she sat down at the dining room table one day for a mid-morning snack of crackers and cheese. George silently drifted into the room and sat down opposite her at the table, eyeing her plate, as she said later, like a cow coming up to the fence. I think that the poet of the Iliad would have appreciated this precise little trope, which was mildly comical, mildly pathetic, and wholly apt. My sister's other contribution to my useful stock of George-related similes was also perfectly right, but, all, but out of Disney rather than Homer. I commented on George's rapid daily walks, 
And I think her thinking here was that he needed an exercise wheel. She said, just think of him as a tall hamster. It's okay to laugh, I think. <laughs> this image took on a surreal life of its own when at least one person spontaneously revised it into giant hamster. But everyone who heard it laughed, even if only a little. It was funny and right and helpful. In the world of dementia, a laugh like a simile is something they don't write prescriptions for. If the cow at the fence and the tall hamster were serviceable similes, here's an example of one I found to be the opposite of helpful. Like some illnesses, this simile is iatrogenic. Its source is a physician. It was offered by the first neurologist we consulted. She asked me, she did ask me how I was doing. I, the caregiver. And I think my answer was less than wholly enthusiastic. You know how it is when you move from one house to another, she said. In the new house, you can live in a state of transition for a long time with piles of boxes all over the place. Or you can really move in and make yourself at home. I don't think you've completely moved in yet. Of course, I understood what the doctor was getting at. One does indeed habituate to surprising things. I was going to say to almost anything. And in some ways, yes, it was easier for me to live with George in 2006 than it had been in 2004 or 2005. And so perhaps I had made some progress towards settling into the new house offered in the neurologist simile. But what kind of house was it? And to what kind of new life was I getting accustomed? The neurologist did not ask these questions, which it is the business of similes not only to ask, but to answer. Living alongside a spouse with dementia is, in my experience, exhausting and boring, lonely and frustrating. I could add other adjectives like uncanny and frightening and terribly, terribly sad. I could add a lot of adjectives. And I had a, lot of, a fair amount of help taking care of George. Without the help, it's not even imaginable what it would have been like. If I hadn't unpacked all those boxes and moved right in, was I to blame? The more I thought about it, the more I resisted the neurologist's simile, which proved to be prophetic of her ability to make me feel inadequate and guilty at every turn. A few months later, I found another neurologist, one who didn't make me feel like a failure. So I'm going to sort of bifurcate here just at the end. And one bifurcation is that I, this chapter goes on by quoting passages, one from Edith Wharton's story, The Reckoning, and one from James's Portrait of a Lady, the latter very famous, where wives are thinking bitterly and fearfully of marriage as a prison. And again, Wharton and James were not, to my knowledge, thinking about dementia, but these are enormously eloquent passages. Isabel Archer, realizing that she's married a manipulative, dishonest man, feels as if she's in prison and he's looking in and mocking her. And the, the sentence that stuck with me from there is, of course it had not been physical suffering. For physical suffering, there might have been a remedy, thinks Isabel, but it was an invisible suffering. And uh, I guess the other, the other thought I have is that in this, this defective to me simile of the house that I failed to make myself at home in, the house of dementia keeps changing. The terrain keeps changing. So you can't make yourself at home in a house which is sliding down a hill. And finally, the neurologist I found, thanks to Jill Goldman, who was in the room. Jill? Yay. 
was Dr. Albers here in the Behavioral Neurology Group, and that was when I met Dr. Noble in March of 07, and then Dr. Albers peeled off and went to Harvard, but I thought I would stay here in the Behavioral Neurology Group, and I had the great good fortune to work with Dr. Noble and Dr. Honig, and it was, it was as Dr. Noble said, a rough course for everybody. It was not easy for everybody, or for anybody, including George, but, um, it's very important to find the right doctor, even if finally doctors are not able to cure, at this point, this terrible, terrible disease. So I would like to stop here with, with thanks, and I would be very happy to answer questions, read another poem, whatever. Thank you for listening so well. piece about it. One was aged five and one was aged seven or eight. And I think he found that by the time he was 11 or 12 or 10, of course he was beginning to be a pre-adolescent and play the electric guitar. There were a lot of other factors. Um, but I think he just found that his memories of good times with his father sort of petered out. I don't think he noticed it at the time. And I think that one of the things about insidious, which comes up in the literature a lot, is that there is no way of noticing it at the time. And that was something I found in many of the books I read, Stolen Mind, for example, or Death in Slow Motion, that by the time the disease is diagnosed, it's been going on for a good long time. And there's always any, any, any uh, conversation with the caregiver is going to be a flashback, right? And I think George's was, I don't know, but I had the sense it was exceptionally slow and insidious moving forward. Um, and another formulation I made is that every, every dementia has its own metabolism, just the way some people have a high metabolism and some are more sluggish. This, this dementia was indolent, in the word of the first neurologist. Perhaps that's a clinical term. I don't know. Yeah? Would you review, uh, you may have said it, uh, whether there was a point at which you and George talked about what was coming down the pike, and was that any effect? And I have a second question, which I don't want to preempt in masses, but I'll put it out there. Um, maybe it's because I'm from California, but would any kind of group uh, uh, contact with people with similar problems uh, have been relevant in your situation? Both good questions, and yeah, I mean, I'll talk about groups in a second. Um, very early on, I had a conversation with George, and I do write about it. But my memories of conversations with him were so sparse by the time that he couldn't remember what year we got married. He, he was still saying sentences, but it was already difficult. So you and couldn't many. Do, uh, you couldn't do any planning or. Anything. 
the planning I did, I sort of had to do on my own. Well, we, we did power of attorney and stuff, but he, he did say a few very heartbreaking things. He said once, I'm so sorry to visit this on you. And he said a couple of times, I don't know what I'd do without you. But those are wonderful things, but you have to spread those over about three years. Um, so there weren't a lot. And there were, other, there were things that were not allowed to be talked about, like the fact that he couldn't teach anymore. Um, so part of, part of the psychological torture of, of this is I felt as if, although I wasn't in denial, I sort of had to pretend to be in denial for him, as if everything's actually normal, although he wasn't doing anything. Um, he'd go, he would go out and buy the paper and sit down and wait to be served breakfast, and then another empty day would begin with, with some walks in the park. That was good. Um, many support groups, there are three that I'll mention. The, um, I took myself to a frontotemporal dementia conference in the fall of 06 in California and met Jill Goldman, who was about to move to, to New York. And she started up an FTD family and caregiver support group, um, which she had been running in San Francisco, the equivalent. So that was enormously helpful. And that started in January of 07. That was a great reality check for me. And also, Jill was able to recommend people in the behavioral neurology group, because I said, I need a new doctor. You, you learn to be more executive. As your spouse becomes more disexecutive, you learn to be more executive. Uh, another wonderful organization that I found online and have been very active in is called WellSpouse. I have some information about it if anyone's interested. It's a nonprofit specifically for spouses and partners of people who are ill or disabled. And it, there is a, a preponderance of neurodegenerative diseases, people who live a long time and won't get better. Although anything is allowed, it could be cancer, it could be anything. And WellSpouse um, runs grassroots support groups, and I ran one for a long time. I am now what they call a former WellSpouse, an FWS. Um, but uh, that's been enormously helpful. And, uh, and then when George was in a facility for almost three years, which was the, the halcyon period of institutionalizations at five different places, which was really harrowing, um, the best one and the longest time was in Manhattan. And I started a support group there because it seemed like a no-brainer. We had a community there. We had a room in which to meet. And people definitely need to talk to other people. I don't think it's California. But as I say, it's not enough by itself but I think, it, it, I think it's extremely helpful. And I'm a, I'm a teacher and I like to run a meeting and I like to give people reading to do and say, here's some good books. And I like to bring in lawyers and whoever Dr. Noble very generously gave his time and came and spoke about FTD to the group at this facility. So it's not simply sitting around complaining. Um, I, I'm very much in favor of support groups and I have literature here. Yeah, yeah, Marsha. I know Carol a little bit. Um, she talks about being married twice, um, being married once, widowed twice, and uh, I wonder if you felt that way. Oh yeah. Oh yes. Um, except that Carol's husband suffered a traumatic brain injury in a in a catastrophic event, more like a stroke, and George's was so insidious that I did lose him twice, but the first time was so slow that there was never a moment. You know the Emily Dickinson poem, My Life Closed Twice Before It's Closed? Who knew she was talking about dementia, right? Um, 
Yeah, in fact, I'm very crabby around letters of condolence, and letters of condolence that say how terrible that your husband died, I assume what people mean is how terrible this disease was. And they can say whatever they want, and the disease to me is, is the terrible part. But I think many, many people in Carol's position or in my position feel as if they've been widowed twice. And, and it gets stranger than that. I was with George in a nursing home in Riverdale last June, and we were standing waiting for the elevator, and a very nice woman came out of the elevator with a lunch tray, and we were chatting. She was Albanian. We spoke a little Greek together. And she looked at us, and she said, are you his mother? And I thought, oh boy. I mean, I know that I've aged a lot, but um, I think that she, the, the whole relationship changes. And I've heard other well spouses say that. So that it might be more useful to think of the relationship, it, it might remain a strong caregiving relationship, but more like the mother of a young child. You, you have to be able to think flexibly as things change, I think. Yeah, Jill. Um, I'd just like to make two comments about uh, this gentleman's questions to you. Um, I think one is that in silent childhood dementia, unlike much of Alzheimer's disease, the patient, um, as Rachel said, loses their insight very, very quickly. So something that's so difficult is that the spouse is aware that something is wrong, can't really have a conversation about it with the, their spouse because everything's fine. Thank you, Jill, yes. And then the, the second is what you said about moving into the new house. Um, I think one of the comments that comes up over and over again in our support groups is that, that you get used to a certain stage and then there's a new normal. And there's a series of these new normals. So it's constantly getting used to a new stage, as you said. Um, I was also wondering, Rachel, if you might talk about um, that first decision that you had to make that was so very, very hard. Oh. Um, and this is, I think, one of the things that um, is difficult about a support group. The people are in the groups are at different stages. Their particular situation is different, and what's right for one person might not be right for another. Um, and it's important to own up when someone comes into a support group that they might hear things that, uh, you know, are very difficult for them to hear, number one, because of their stage, and number two, it might never happen to them. Um, and Rachel is the first person in the group to have to make a decision. It's hard to talk about, I, it's hard to remember how I did it because it was so hard. It's probably like a burst of adrenaline that enables you to lift up a Volkswagen, only it took more <laughs> planning. I mean, I have a chapter where I sort of divided myself in two. I said I was the poet and the drudge. The poet went on teaching and writing and making notes about books she was reading, and the drudge started researching, going to websites like well, um, aplaceformom.com and began to visit places without at all knowing when I was going to do it. I just thought it was sort of time to start, and I really did build a wall down the middle of my head. It's, it, I don't know how to talk about it better than that. I, I, it's very hard. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. And people were not, people had suggestions, but no one person um, made it terribly easy. On the other hand, the professionals I saw 
none of them, not Jill, not Dr. Noble, no one said, you shouldn't do this, it's a mistake. No one really said you should or you shouldn't. I mean, Jill, I, I used to say to Jill, it wasn't an emergency. It wasn't as if George had become incontinent or immobile. He was striding around, and Jill said, well, it was an emergency for you. And I think that was very helpful. Um, but there was a kind of an arbitrariness. I had to draw a line in the sand. It is not always the case. Sometimes something happens where somebody realizes they can't do it anymore. They cannot lift the person, or they can't clean up after them. Or Sometimes people wait. FTD people can be quite agitated and dangerous. And sometimes people find themselves calling 911. I think that's waiting too long myself. I think that you, you need to be flexible in your thinking. But it's really hard for me to go back there, Jill. But I, I do try to write about it. Yeah. Upon your husband's demise, how did you and your family choose to quote unquote celebrate his life and to memorialize his passion? Well, my son and I are both kind of writers. Um, my son wrote a beautiful piece, um, and I've been writing. But we, we gave a little party, a sort of a non-shiva shiva. And Columbia Music Department is doing a memorial in the spring. And we're going to do another larger gathering in Vermont. And there's going to be a piece um, played at a festival in June. George also had a beautiful CD that was released last May. So I don't think there's any one answer. I would, I'd like to say that the brain donation is really important to me. But there's no one thing. I mean, I was, oddly enough, a week after George died, I was at an American Studies conference down at NYU, which I had rashly agreed to talk at, but I, I said I can't prepare anything. But it was all about memory. And the um, Puerto Rican black writer Piri Tomas had died around the same time as George. And a young woman was very angry about the obituary. She didn't like the New York Times obituary. And she asked a very important question, which is when somebody dies, who owns the narrative? Whose story is it? George's story is complicated. Um, I was his wife for more than 30 years, but I'm not a musician. You know, who gets to tell that story? Finally, I think his work will last, if it lasts. I mean, my father used to say, well, Lincoln would have been dead by now anyway. I mean, in 50 years, it won't matter that George had this dementia. What will matter is the music he wrote and a wonderful book that he wrote, which I was instrumental in getting published. So that, to me, is the best memorial. I, I like to say to my students, what is a book if not somebody talking to you who can't talk to you anymore? And George's prose is beautiful. And I, I actually have a, a page in the book of something he wrote in 2008, which was probably the last year he was able to write at all. And it's, it's just heartbreaking to see. So the answer's a little bit scattered. Yeah, Nellie? Can you read us one of your poems? Sure. Which one? Also, George's letters mean a lot to me, and I was able to, I gave his journal, he was at the American Academy in Rome in the 70s, and I didn't feel like reading his journal, it's hard enough to read his letters, and I'll read them later, but um, I gave his journal to my son, who is incredibly hungry and thirsty for information about his father. I think in a case like this, the best thing friends and family and colleagues can do, and we have a small family, the kindest thing to do is to write to somebody in that family and say, here's what I remember. And that's happening, but I wish it was happening more. Um, OK. OK, just a second. 
The trouble is, Nellie, you've opened a can of worms. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm going to read a poem about looking um, at George's letters. Um, so he, he moved out. I moved him out early in 08, and then I went to visit my sister in New Mexico, and we found ourselves visiting the Georgia O'Keeffe Archive. And I had felt like an archivist for quite a while anyway, and I'm not a very good archivist. I'm not a historian. There's a wonderful librarian here. Jenny? Jenny Lee is at Butler Library, and she's been very helpful in cataloging some of George's things. I mean, it takes a village, you know? Well, so anyway, um, I, I, this poem is addressed to George. Po lyric poems can talk directly to a person. We don't usually write prose or memoirs in the second person, but it comes naturally to write poems in the second person. So I'm talking about George at the beginning and the end, and in the middle I'm talking about the O'Keeffe archive, which I found fascinating, of sort of like a reliquary. In the drawer. I can only bear to go through your old letters glancingly at first. Tucked away in my own files, they were half forgotten and half lost. Georgia O'Keeffe's blue sneakers, navy blazer, and white silk handkerchief turn out to have been reverently preserved in Santa Fe in cabinets. My sister took me there today, whose shallow drawers contain with other treasures, paint chips like little shards of desert sky, brushes, pastels, Open another, stones which she collected, cherished. Another, bones, vertebrae especially, and skulls small enough to fit into these long, low drawers. Another, rows of pink and pearly shells. A reliquary of the whole outdoors of desert seasons shrunk and tucked away in shallow trays that shut without a sound and open only at some scholar's sesame. Such objects, if they can be said to speak, employ a different dialect from the bright gloss of colors stroked across a canvas, affably beckoning from some neutral wall, so that the viewer peers into it as into a mirror that can tell whatever it is we ask reflections to convey. Bones and shells and stones, though, keep their counsel. As to what your letters to me say, I cannot yet quite bear to look and see. I do note shared jokes, references, joy, when I snatch a glimpse quickly from the corner of my eye. I think I'll read a, a very short passage from a letter to me that he wrote from McDowell Colony. We met at McDowell, and he used to like to, pre-email days, back in the day when people wrote letters, we enjoyed writing letters to each other. And he's working on a piece. I don't remember which one. He didn't date his letters. He would write, Wednesday, March 10th. No year. So it's a little hard. You ask about the dialogic character of the piece. Well, first, each of the instruments has a different persona as it, and is associated with a different interval collection. I can best describe by associating each with a composer. Flute, Debussy, Oboe, Varez, Clarinet, Messiaen, Stravinsky, Violin, Ives, Copland, Americana, Viola, Schoenberg, Opus 33A, Cello, Webern, Percussion. They interact in a variety of ways. For, in, for examples, the violin and cello collections can share four pitches, fight over the two pairs of different pitches that would complete both collections. The whole ensemble can be dominated by the collection associated with one instrument, while each individually still tries to assert its own collection. 
the instruments can imitate each other's gestures, translating them into their own collection. They can exchange masks. George was very interested in the literary criticism of Bakhtin and was fond of the word dialogic applied to music. And one of his favorite ways of criticizing a boring person was to say, they're very monologic. <laughs> so you can see that this was somebody who was at ease with language and who was very interested in music communicating. On the one hand, it's heartbreaking what happened. On the other hand, we have those letters. And his music feels much more expressive to me than it ever did. I recommend his CD. I'm, I'm not very musical, and this is difficult music, but I listen to it over and over, and it brings him back. That's probably it. That's, that's it. Thank, Thank you. you.